Greetings uh, from Cornerstone Community Church in Burnsville. Pastor Rick said to make sure uh, I tell you greetings from him. So I'm getting that out of the way now so I don't forget. And thank you, Nate, for that kind introduction. Uh, it really is an honor to be here. Um, I really appreciate Nate uh, and his um, shepherding gift. And so he and I have connected through counseling. That is a passion of mine. And uh, so um, I believe that all preaching is heralding of God's word, but I do believe that all preaching is counseling. And I know that that's what Nate does each week, and that's what I'm excited uh, to do with you guys. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you guys can turn to Psalm 142. I'm going to read the text, and then I'll pray one more time for God's help. But this will be the text we are considering this morning. Psalm 142. This is a maskil of David when he was in the cave, and it's a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we dive into it. Well, Father, uh, thank you so much for your holy word. Thank you for this psalm in particular. And I pray that by our, the end of our time here this morning that we can say with full confidence like David, you are our refuge. And so come and send your spirit to make that happen. Come and minister to our hearts, and may you, God, be our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Come and help us uh, see you as refuge now through this text we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you wanted to escape. You wanted to run away from this present moment as fast as you could. And I've had multiple experiences of that throughout my life, moments where I was embarrassed or I was so terrified or I was hurting and I wanted to be anywhere else than the present moment. It will be of no surprise to you then that one of the more memorable commercials to me is by Southwest Airlines and their Wanna Get Away commercials, if you remember those. They've had several varieties over the year, all with the same message. And it's a person who's in an uncomfortable, embarrassing, difficult spot, and then the the screen freezes and says, Wanna get away? Now you can. And then they advertise their discounted airfare. One of them that stands out to me in particular showed a guy walking down the street. And he gets into a car in downtown with a driver in it, and he's clearly assuming this is his Uber driver. So he gets in the car in the back seat, and the driver looks back back at him with a very confused face. 
At the same time, his phone rings, and it's his Uber driver, driver asking him where he is. So now he knows he got in the wrong vehicle. But before he can leave, immediately the camera zooms in and two people jump in the vehicle, one on the right side, one on the left side. They're wearing masks with bags of money. And they say, go, go, go. (laughs) Situation got worse. He knows that he has just jumped into a vehicle that has robbed a bank. And that's why the getaway driver was looking at him. And the screen freezes and says, want to get away. Now you can. And then they advertise their airfare. Want to get away. That statement captures the desire to escape that is deeply ingrained in the human heart. It is a common experience of life in a fallen world. Now, we might better word this desire to escape with biblical language. And I propose to you that the biblical language of escape is seeking refuge. That we are all refuge seekers by nature. Right? And this is ingrained in us. We know this. Right? From when we're kids. What's the first thing you do when there's a boogeyman in your closet or a monster under the bed? You go to the refuge of your parents' bed. This is in all of us. Deeply ingrained in us. And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning, is the concept of refuge. Now, a refuge can be referred to in the physical sense or in the spiritual sense. So physically, there were, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see there were cities of refuge that God established in the scriptures. Uh, One of the reasons was for people who unintentionally killed someone. They could go to this city of refuge and be assured temporary safety until they had a fair trial. In a spiritual sense, a refuge is something or someone you turn to when in danger or suffering for security, help, and hope, right? And you see this, and this is kind of what I'm talking about today, is the spiritual refuge. Here's a couple examples of this in Psalm 63 and Jeremiah 17, 17. Psalm 61, 3 says this, you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. In Jeremiah 17, 17, be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. So God is a refuge for his people. And this is the experience of David in Psalm 142. Now, I want to be very clear here. There are other places we turn not to God for refuge, right? One of my biggest problems right, before I came to Christ, was that heroin was a refuge and strength, a very present help for me in times of trouble. It was a false refuge. I was trying to deal with sin and pain and difficult things in my life with an idol, right? So I replaced God, the object of my worship, with something in creation. That is the Bible's definition of idolatry. What I hope we see through this psalm is that not every object or person or destination is worthy of running to. In fact, what I pray we see is there is only one true refuge for our souls. So, with that introduction, we're going to begin this morning in a little different place. We're going to begin by considering the location of this psalm. We are told some background of this psalm. 
which were not always done, right? There are a few psalms that we are told the background. Psalm 51, we know that that was written after Nathan the prophet confronted David in his sin, and it's really important to understand that background. So I want to draw attention to the fact that this psalm was written in the cave. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know there were two incidents where David was in the cave that we are given. He was in the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22, 1, and he was in the cave of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24, 3. Now, we do not know for sure which cave this psalm is referring to, but both times David, when he runs to a cave, is fleeing for his life from Saul. Now, this wasn't abnormal to flee to a cave when in danger because caves were often that refuge in the physical sense, right? So they're that refuge in the physical sense. For instance, and let me demonstrate this, here are several examples of people fleeing to caves in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 10 describes Joshua's conquest of the promised land, and he defeats the Amorites. And after battle, the five Amorite kings run away and they try to hide in a cave, Judges 6.2, the Midianites oppressed Israel, so they took refuge in dens and caves. 1 Samuel 13.6, after Saul is king, the Philistines come to attack Israel, and when the Israelites see the size of the Philistine army, they flee to caves. And 1 Kings 18.4, Obadiah hides a hundred prophets from Jezebel in caves. Now, you may be asking, thanks for why the biblical theology of caves Most of the time, we aren't given these details of the background of the Psalms, but I draw attention for this important reason. God's word is communicating to us that while caves are a place of physical refuge to hide in the midst of trouble, the cave itself is not David's ultimate refuge. I get so convicted when I read this Psalm, right? Because if this was me, I'd get to the cave and be like, I'm safe. That's not what David does. David does something spectacular when he reaches the cave. He cries out to the Lord. He didn't reach the cave, breathe a sigh of relief, take a nap to regain physical strength. I'm safe from Saul. His inclination in the cave was to draw near in faith to the Lord who he knew to be a safe refuge, his help and hope in times of need. So we need to pause and consider a question as we journey through this psalm. Where do you turn in times of difficulty? To whom or what do you run to for help and hope when you're suffering, when you're in danger? The answer to that question is your functional refuge. And for David, it was not The cave itself. The cave merely provided a location for him to turn to his ultimate refuge. So this morning, let's hold out this psalm. And like David, let it lead us to the Lord, who is our refuge. So the outline that we're going to walk through this psalm is pretty simple. We're going to first look at David's cry. Then we're going to look at David's circumstances. Then we're going to look at his renewed confidence. And as we do that, I'm going to spend some specific time at the end talking about how much more confidence we can have to go to the Lord as our refuge because of Christ. 
So let's begin by looking at David's cry in verses 1 and 2. Listen again to how the psalm opens. He says this, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. David reaches the cave and he opens his mouth. Not to the empty hollows of the cave, but to the Lord who is with them, with him and is a present help in times of trouble. That's Psalm 46.1. God is a refuge and strength, a present help in times of trouble. Specifically, we are told in the opening verses that he pours out his complaint and tells him his trouble. Now, you may be like me when you hear the word complaint. Almost every time we use that word in culture, right, when we use that word, it is a negative word. We just assume that it means a sinful negative complaint. Bible commentator Derek Kidner points out that the word we translate for complaint is not as petulant as it is in English, and it could be rendered, my troubled thoughts. That's what he's doing here. This is not a sinful complaint, but a cry of faith. Because, despite the troubling thoughts, he is bringing them to the Lord in humility and for help. He's pleading for mercy. So this is much different than approaching God with a raised fist of sinful accusation. Why are you sending Saul at me? I don't deserve this. That's not what he's doing here. He is asking the Lord in faith, meet me. Meet me in my time of trouble. Meet me in my sorrow. Because, right, as believers, we don't want to bring sinful accusation to God. Even when it sometimes doesn't seem like he's working, we don't understand. We come in faith knowing that he is God and we are not. So the character of God is at stake in how you approach him. He repeats this idea in the next line. I tell my trouble before him. So David is telling him what's hard in his life. He is putting into words the difficult thoughts and emotions he experiences in his sufferings with confidence that he can do so before the Lord. Now we need to see this psalm, like so many of our psalms, as a divine invitation to speak to God when we're in trouble. Right? The psalms are this divine invitation from God saying, talk to me. Come, I want to hear from you. Tell me your troubles. He will listen and he cares. One of my tasks as a counselor is to help those I work with put their emotions, desires, and experiences into words and begin to speak them to the Lord. And when we do this, God's word opens up to us with counsel. Right? So uh, Nate shared that I work in addiction ministry, and this is a big thing I'm trying to do all the time. Because if you want to help someone with addiction and you're a Christian, right, how do, I, how do you help me with addiction? I'm an addict, get out your Bible, you look in the back, oh shoot, the word addiction isn't anywhere in the Bible. What do I do? Right? And that's why a lot of other places and other counseling methods are so prevalent, right? Because they're thinking well about addiction. But if you pause and listen to them and ask them, hey, tell me how you got into your addiction. Tell me what you're looking for. Why do you use, right? And you ask them and they start pouring out their heart. You start to begin to map on their experience with biblical words and you reframe it for them. And the category of idolatry just opens up 
all throughout Scripture. That's what addiction is. It's looking to something else to satisfy. It's these compulsive desires, right? Habitual indulgence in sinful desire. That's what idolatry is. That's what addiction is. So this is really important that we learn how to pour out our hearts to the Lord. It's not just here in this psalm that we're given this divine invitation. This is a theme throughout the book of Psalms. A couple passages here to demonstrate this. So here are three passages that demonstrate this idea of pouring out to your hearts and then expecting the Lord to do something in response as we cry out to him. That's what he does. We cry out, he responds. Psalm 77, 1 through 2 says this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Psalm 55, 16 to 17. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Psalm sixty-nine, thirteen. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. When we talk to God, he hears us. You can be assured of that. And he will respond. He will do something. I think C.S. Lewis understood this when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Perhaps you know what scene I'm referring to in the book, The Horse and His Boy. The boy Shasta is traveling alone, traveling alone at night and he is beginning to feel sorry for himself because of all the misfortunes that he's had up until this point. He begins to cry. And then all of a sudden, he realizes that there is someone walking next to him, but it is dark and he cannot see. He becomes so terrified that Lewis writes this. He said, now he really has something to cry about. But the unseen companion continues to walk beside him, breathing, and eventually Shasta can't take it anymore, and he cries out, who are you? Now, of course, the reader of the novel knows that it is Aslan, the Christ figure in the series. But do you know what Aslan says in response to Shasta when he cries out? Cries out, who are you? Aslan responds, one who has waited long for you to speak. And Shasta still wonders if he is talking to a giant or perhaps a ghost until Aslan breathes on him again. He calms him and he says to him, tell me your sorrows. That's the picture of the Lord that we are given in Psalm 142. One who is waiting for us to speak to him in our sorrows. Perhaps that's you this morning. You have sorrows, you have pain, you have besetting sin, you have doubts. It is tempting to go somewhere else in those moments. I'm just going to zone out on Netflix for three hours. I'm going to go get a gallon of ice cream and feel sorry for myself, right? It is tempting to look for other refuge. This psalm is an invitation for us to talk to the Lord. Begin to pour out your heart to him. He is a refuge who desires. He is a personal God. The incarnation is the demonstration of that. He wants to hear from you about your sorrows. So with that, that cry to the Lord... Let's take note of our next point. Let's look at David's circumstances. 
It is important as we jump to point two to remember that when we cry out to the Lord, it does not mean we ignore our circumstances, right? You just put on a mask, let's, let's quote some cheesy Christian cliches to get us through. We turn to the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances with honesty, radical honesty about our heart and about our situation, and we let the Lord sort it out. Like he's so good at being able to sort out everything that we're going through. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That's Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Search my heart. You see if there's any wicked or grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You ever thought about that? How often do we say to people, oh, you don't really know me. This was my motive. The truth is we don't really know us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He's our maker. Before any thought is even on our tongue, he knows it. He knows what you're going to think five minutes from now. His knowledge is amazing. So we turn to him with whatever we've got going on. And as we look at the circumstances in David, you'll know two things. Something is happening within him, and something is happening to him. Right? And that's often experience, right? Things are happening to us. We're being acted upon by people and circumstances and things in this world. And there is a turmoil, how we interpret that, a responding to that. And that's what's happening, right? And we can go to God with both of those things. So first, within him is an inner affliction and discouragement. Look at the phrases in verse 3 and 6. Verse 3 says this, when my spirit faints. And verse 6 says, I am brought very low. These phrases indicate an overwhelming anxiety on the verge of hopelessness. This is not a statement of, I'm I'm a little concerned right now. Right? The spirit fainting is to the point of, nearly to the point of giving up. We know this because the spirit's soul, right, in the Psalms is that inner being. It's the place where we bless the Lord, where we trust the Lord, where we thirst for the Lord, hope in the Lord. That's not what he's saying here. My spirit faints. There is a deep inner turmoil within his soul that he is pouring out to God. But that's not all we notice about David's circumstances. Something is happening to David. David is afflicted because he's being persecuted. Verse 7. He also speaks of his enemies hiding traps for him in the path where he walks. So there's constant dangers around him. His prayer for deliverance from this persecution, he acknowledges that they are too strong for him in verse 6. This is the same David who killed Goliath is now constantly running from Saul who is trying to set traps for him and kill him. See, the road to David's kingdom was not an easy passage without difficulty. It consisted of ambushes and persecutions and detours and caves. And the road for David's greater son, Jesus Christ, was not an easy road either. He was not spared from suffering. He walked through the agonies of the cross before he was exalted in glory. And likewise for us, it is an important point that we have to make in this psalm. We are not spared from a difficult life. We are not spared from suffering. The fact that God is referred to as a refuge necessarily implies suffering. That he has provided himself as the refuge to get through difficult moments. 
Here's Mark Jones on this point of Christians necessarily experiencing suffering from his excellent book, one of my favorite books outside the Bible, Knowing Christ. He says this, The path to glory for the Christian is necessarily one of suffering. It is the agonizing way, the narrow gate which leads to life. The easy road to glory is the devil's lie. This lie was proposed to Jesus in his temptation, and it is continually offered to his followers. But our worship and service to the Lord must be on his term, not ours. It was the way of suffering for Jesus, and it must be this way for us. This means that the biblical question is not, will I suffer in this life? The biblical question is, to whom will you turn when you suffer? No one else can bring hope and purpose and meaning in the midst of your suffering other than God. And we're going to see this psalm move David to confidence, but I'm pausing here to bring up this point. We will suffer in this world. Anything else David is experiencing? Look at verse 4. He says this. Look to the right and see. There is none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. The right was a place where one's witness or legal counsel stood. David looks there and he sees, I got no men standing by my side. I cannot depend on anyone the way I need to right now. He is alone and abandoned by others and concludes, no one cares for my soul. And again here, we just see this this glimpse of David's greater son, Jesus. David is alone in the cave, praying to the one who would come through his lineage. And at the moment of his need, he was left alone by his disciples in the garden because they couldn't stay awake with him. And so he too prayed alone. But in that loneliness of Christ in the garden and on the cross when he's praying alone, bearing the sins of his people, Christ is teaching us how to pray in the midst of even the worst circumstances. Even when friends betray or abandon you, you can draw near to the Lord and entrust your situation to him who cares for your soul. 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Trust, turn to your refuge. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? In other words, when we suffer, by God's grace, we have the power to entrust ourselves to him for hope and help to do good while we suffer. So, a lot of circumstances going on in David's life, and he brings them all one by one to the Lord. But this leads us to the next point, David's renewed confidence. Okay, so that's our third point, because as David is crying out to the Lord, right, he's telling him about his circumstances, there begins to see this hope in him stirring up, right? There's a confidence in God that is being renewed as he does it. Though the circumstances are difficult, there is hope embedded throughout this prayer. Now, one glimpse of hope that we see is that even though his spirit faints within him, verse 3, he boldly proclaims this, but you know my way. 
Think about this. David is incapable of seeing the path ahead. But one thing he does know is that the Lord, who rules over all, knows his path. And he trusts that the Lord is going to give him all the grace that he needs. Right? So David says this in Psalm 139, 3. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Oh, what hope springs forth from the heart when we know that the reason the present situation is before us is because the Lord in his divine providence has brought us there. And he is with us in those moments. And one thing you'll know, one thing you'll see from this psalm, is that it begins with this despair in the cave. But notice how the hope is shifting as you look to God. Right? This is a major theme in Scripture. The thing that the Scriptures call you to hope in is God and His Word. Right? Now, when we use the word hope, again, we're, we use it wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope I can go on a vacation next year. That's not the Bible's use of the word hope. The hope is a confidence. It's an assurance. And that's why it needs to be in God and His Word. Those are the two places that you will see the scripture calling us to hope in. We hope in the return of Christ. Not like, oh, I wish it's going to happen. It might happen, it might not. No, it is going to happen. It is our hope and our eyes are fixed on that. As we do that, right, as we fix our eyes on the Lord, hope begins to stir up in our hearts. So look at verse 5. He says this, I cry to you, O Lord. So there's the direction, moving the eyes upward. I say... You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You see, no city could provide protection, right, for David. If the king's trying to kill you, Saul's trying to kill you, man, there's nowhere where you can run. Neither could a cave provide protection. That's the whole point. He says of God, you are my refuge. God himself became his dwelling place, his safety, and his refuge, And he says, the Lord is my portion in the land of the living. The idea of portion is one's inheritance. David's portion, right, is nothing but the Lord himself. God was all he wanted in this moment, all he needed. And I know we often confess that, but it is often in the caves of adversity when we begin to experience that. Right When all the comforts of life are stripped away, we're in a difficult moment, and all we can do is turn to the Lord. Then we find him to be our refuge, our inheritance, our portion in the land of the living. One more picture of David's renewed confidence. Look at verse 7. Attend to my cry. So he's continuing to cry throughout this psalm. I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. So here again, we see that prayer for help and deliverance. And this is one of the most amazing things you can do, right? When life is hard, we're going to see the hope restored, but how he gets there is by saying, Help me. Rescue me. Right? Ed Welch, who's a biblical counselor, says, Jesus, help me, is one of the best prayers you can ever pray. Right? It's one of the most honorable, best prayers you can ever pray. Jesus, help. Because we were made for this kind of dependence. 
And after David prays for help, then here's where the confidence get renews that God's going to deliver him. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Biblical faith in this way is often future-oriented, forward-looking. We look ahead by trusting in God's promises now. David could see with eyes of faith his release from the suffering he was in because he could look beyond circumstances to his true refuge in God who will deal bountifully with him. And he trusted in his refuge. He foresees himself giving thanks to God and he abounds in confidence because he knows God's care for him in this moment will continue to be good now and going forward. Now this doesn't mean that God's going to deliver you in every way we think. This is not a prosperity gospel, right? That he's going to deliver us in every exact way that we can hope for. I have a friend who was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer and had a conversation with him and he said when people die of cancer, they say um, they lost their battle with cancer. He said, if this thing takes my physical life, do not say I lost my battle. Because the Lord is going to deliver me. He will either physically heal me, and it will be a testimony of his gracious, compassionate mercy, or his deliverance will come, and in who will deliver me from this wretched body, right? And he will find his ultimate deliverance through death. Because death has been defeated. So when David is confident, when you see confidence of deliverance, it's again in the way God says he's going to deliver right? It's God's way of deliverance. We see this all throughout the Bible. Paul in jail in Philippians, right? He's writing that letter and he makes this amazing statement, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul is confident and content in the book of Philippians. He's got great joy. It's the theme of the letter. Why? Not because he's expecting a particular outcome. He knows whatever happens. I'm fine. I know how to be brought down low. I know how to abound. Right? You take my life, I get to be in the presence of King Jesus, which is far better. But if I get released and it's fruitful labor and I'm preaching the gospel, it's better for other people, it's harder for me, I'm going to be fine. There is a confidence in God's deliverance, but it is God's way of deliverance. Right? And again, I'm often convicted because I often want my way of deliverance, but God has purposes that we cannot see. See, his main purpose for your life it's not ease and comfort, pain-free life. That's what I want. That's what a lot of addicts want. It's an attractive way to live, right? I want to maximize pleasure and escape pain. That's what I want for my life. God's will for your life is your sanctification that will lead to a greater glorification of his name. So it necessarily means pain and suffering, but in the midst of that, we can have incredible confidence. And so you see David going to the Lord, crying out with his circumstances, and you see as he shifts his focus to God, man, confidence begins to grow. And that's what happens. And so Charles Spurgeon said at the end of this psalm, when we can begin a psalm with crying, we may hope to close it with singing. The voice of prayer soon awakens the voice of praise. And that's what happened in this psalm. Now, We're almost done, but I want to focus briefly on how much more confidence we can turn, we can have to turn to God in the midst of our suffering and trials because we have Christ as our refuge. 
It is so important. We go through these psalms. We look at them through the lens of David's greater son, Jesus Christ, because the confidence to approach the throne of God should be greater for us because of what Christ has done. So let me unpack more of this confidence that we can have. One of the themes running throughout all of Scripture is this. If you don't understand this, it is going to be hard to make sense of the Bible. God is holy and we are sinners. This means that God's presence is not a safe place for sinners to turn to because his holiness consumes sinners. Think about this thought for a moment. I ran across this a while back from a local pastor here in Minnesota. His name's Luke Walker. He, he said this. He said, the sun will burn your eyes out from a distance of 92 million miles. Do you think you can casually just stroll into the presence of its maker? That thought will get you thinking about who God is. Sin causes alienation from God, separates us from his holy presence, incites his wrath, and his holiness does consume sinners. But wrath, God's just punishment of sin, is not his only response towards sin. I mean, that's the beauty that you see all throughout the scriptures. God has two responses towards sin. Wrath and grace. So while God is angry with us because of our sin, at the same time, God has determined a way to provide atonement for sinners to wash and cleanse them, but also to provide reconciliation so that they can come and dwell with their God. In other words, you can come into God's presence provided it is on his terms, not ours. That's how you come into God's presence. So we got these two responses. You come in to God's presence on his terms. So how do you know whether God is a safe refuge? How do you know? Am I going to get wrath or grace? And the answer is Christ. In the gospel, God comes near to us in Christ. He cleanses us and clothes us with a righteousness so that we who were once far off, according to Ephesians 2, 13, have been brought near by his blood. Now, I need to be very clear here. You must come to God as your refuge first from your sin. You think, wait a minute. I thought he's got wrath. I got to run away. No. Christ is the refuge for your sin that takes away the wrath of God. That's the only way you don't get wrath, is if you're sheltered in Christ, if you come through him. Look at 1 John 4, 9 through 10. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live how? Through him, through Christ. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. It is through him that we might live. So brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, you are first and foremost sheltered from the wrath of God as you have escaped into the shelter of Christ. As Noah and his family fled from the coming wrath into the shelter of the ark, so we have run into a greater ark, the shelter of Jesus Christ, which means Romans 8.1 is true of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, have hidden in their refuge God through Jesus Christ. Now what this means is all that remains for you, every way God relates to you, is sheer grace. 
because the once and for all sacrifice has come and satisfied the wrath of God. There is no more wrath. There may be discipline for you. There may be hardship, but even that is grace. No wrath. There is none all poured out on Christ Jesus. So, you can have a confidence to come to God with whatever you're dealing with. Sin, suffering, hardship, trials, come to God. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the application if you know your God and what he has done for you in the gospel. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can have incredible confidence. And I think a text like this would blow the minds of people who understood, right, what the the priests had to do to come into the presence of God. It's this crazy process, right? And if they didn't do it perfectly, they would die. And this is a crazy command to say, you come boldly. Not because we have confidence in ourselves that we can do enough and we can do it perfectly, right? And we got to do it this particular way. No, it's a confidence that Christ has done what we could not. And if you notice in Hebrews 4, God's presence, right, is often described as in New Testament a throne, right? Revelation, that's a huge metaphor for God's presence in the Old Testament. What is his throne described at in Hebrews 4? A throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace and expect that that's exactly what you're going to get from God. You will get grace, Christian, if you run to him. So the application is obvious this morning. Are you trapped in sin? Are you suffering this morning, Christian? Do you need help? Run to your father through his son. And don't do so timidly. Run with confidence. Because Christ has died for you. And God is your father and wants you to come, like all good fathers do, want their kids to come to them when they're struggling. Your sympathetic high priest, the one who made you and knows you, cares for your soul, is the one who will renew your confidence in him. And maybe your circumstances don't change. But I can promise you that your hope can abound. Your confidence can abound. Because your confidence is in God himself. He will, he will be faithful to bring you through purified and more like Christ. So church, Psalm 142 is your psalm and your prayer. It's your prayer because God is your refuge. Cry out to him when life is hard. Tell him your sorrows. And as you press deeper into your refuge and find him faithful to reveal more of himself, may you abound in confidence in our great and glorious refuge, Jesus Christ, and may he be your help and hope in times of trouble.